Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome into the podcast, uh, Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell. Episode number 175. Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. This week's edition of the podcast, we'll talk with a couple of gentlemen who have chronicled and reported on the American story and more uh, for more than four decades. Later on, veteran CBS and ABC newsman and anchor, the great Morton Dean, will join us and talk about his career and the state of broadcast journalism today. But up front, a great friend of our show, he comes on every time. He's got a brand new film, and lucky enough for us, two in one year. Ken Burns last joined us back in the spring to discuss his documentary with Lynn Novick on the writer Ernest Hemingway. Ken is back with a brand new one, Muhammad Ali, that premieres Sunday night, September 19th, on the stations of the public broadcasting system. And always a treat to welcome Ken Burns this time around to talk about Ali. Hi there, Ken. How are you today? Good, Rich. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing very good, thank you. Uh, wow. Uh, enjoyed this so much as uh, somebody who grew up with Ali and uh, just a, an absolutely wonderful film. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you. Well, one of the things I liked most about it was the scope. I mean, we, we know Ali the boxer, and that's obviously the central part of the story, but I thought it was so great to learn about his young life, his family, marriage, his parenting, and, and all of that, and it gave us such a complete picture of the man. Well, I think that that's, in, in essence, one of the main reasons why we wanted to do it. Obviously, he's such a compelling figure, one of the most compelling figures of the 20th century and has much to speak to us today still, but I think also there have been a lot of Ali documentaries and they've been wonderful. They've taken, though, a particular fight or a couple of years and what we were interested, the we being Sarah Burns and David McMahon, my co-directors, and they also wrote the script. Uh, we wanted to take a much more comprehensive view and understand who this person was, where he came from, as you suggest, the birth and boyhood in Jim Crow, Louisville, segregated Louisville, Kentucky, to his death from Parkinson's, you know, five years ago, not that many years ago, um, and dying the most beloved person on the planet after being so reviled at times in the United States or by a large portion of people in the United States. So his relationship to sports, to uh I guess what you'd say is sort of his, his redefinition of black manhood, the intersection with civil rights when he joined a separatist religious uh, sect, cult, uh, his own faith, his own developing faith, the war and politics, his refusal to uh, be inducted into the United States Army. All of those things I thought were really important, as well as, as you pointed out, the personal life. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I think they paid a, a fuller, more complex, more nuanced, uh, portrait of him than just sort of the conventional wisdom, the baggage that we, uh, you know, carry with us about who we think he might have been. One of the things that comes through repeatedly in the course of the film is this strong sense of self that he possessed. How did he develop that? Oh, you know what? This is a great, great question and a great mystery. I think, you know, he's banging pan, pots and pans in the kitchen at one year old. You can see it in school, you can see a kind of confidence and transcendence from the normal 
uh, things that imprison teenagers. And, and then in boxing, he's breaking every single possible rule, not just in the sport of boxing, but in how you promote them. He's, uh, you know, he's predicting the, the round in which his opponent's going to fall. He's reciting poetry. He's bragging about himself. And we're seeing it all as kind of, well, that's not a way an athlete should behave, particularly a black athlete. And we're forgetting that he's speaking for people all around the world, as well as black Americans specifically, who 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 are being brought up by his message of, of affirmation. And, and he even says it at one point, you know, I may not continue boxing uh, when his own cult, you know, the Nation of Islam, suggested that sports wasn't a reasonable thing. And he said, but I know I'm here for a reason. So he, he even saw quite apart from what he actually did for a living, which he did better than anyone else, the, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, without a doubt. Uh, he also knew he had another purpose. And I think by the end of his life, dying as he did, the most beloved man on earth, he realized that his message is one of love. There's a great photograph early on when he's training for the Liston fight at the second floor of the Fifth Street gym, a walk up. And there is the same year as the Beatles invasion. And there are John, Paul, George and Ringo in a kind of staked photograph in which Ali is punching Lennon. And they all seem to be toppling like dynamites. It's a wonderful, <laughs> joyous, totally fake, wonderful PR shot. And yet I, I realized that these five men were, you know, at the forefront. Uh, they are apostles of love as the only solution to the world's problems. And um, it's so interesting that Muhammad Ali took his course through such a brutal sport, but nonetheless ended up in the same place as the Beatles, you know, epitomized, I suppose, by Paul McCartney's line, the love you take is equal to the love you make. That's so much about what Muhammad Ali is about. Uh, you unearthed so many wonderful photographs from early in his life, uh, uh, that and, and the video of him at the Rome Olympics. And I, I've seen you mention this uh, in, in a couple other interviews, but my goodness, what a what a beautiful man young Cassius Clay was. This is, he's gorgeous. As he said, I'm pretty as a girl. You know, aren't I handsome? And he, he would play it up, but he was. He was all of that. He was a magnificent, chiseled specimen of a human being, and he understood that there was a beauty in that that tr transcended kind of any gender. It was just about looking good and feeling good, and, and he did. And the, the poise and the self-confidence in him is, is so wonderful. Yes, you know, PBS allows us the time. I, I, I wouldn't exist without PBS. They allow us the time to, uh, to really do the deep dives and find footage that his daughter, Rashida, said, you know, she wept watching it, you know. Mm. It, there was her daddy, as she calls him. There was daddy, and there was one thing where we had of him holding her as a, a little baby and saying, don't you know your daddy is the baddest person <laughs> on earth? And she'd never seen it before. And when you hear that from family or you've shown warts and all, which the film does, were, you know, certainly not uncritical uh, of him and, and particularly womanizing and his... Um, you know, abandonment of Malcolm X, a little bit more understandable, and his completely irresponsible treatment of Joe Frazier and many other opponents using the language that a white racist would use against the black man. And here he was, the ultimate, as Todd Boyd says in our film, the ultimate conscious black man, you know, and Todd goes on to say he clearly used his powers for evil and not good in that point of view. So we're, we're critical, and yet the family has been 
responding so far just so positively. It's been very exciting. We're talking with Ken Burns here on Downtown. Uh, Many ironies in the story of Ali, and one of them is that by the early 60s, pro-boxing was largely controlled by the mob, and yet it was a group of white Louisville businessmen that really served to protect Clay from all of that. Yeah, you you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, you're absolutely right. Everybody's mobbed up, you know, including Sonny Liston in some way, shape, or form. And here comes this kid who wins the gold at the Rome Olympics, and then the the proud fathers of Louisville, segregated Louisville, band together, 11 of them, to form a syndicate to protect their native son. The local boy does good. And they go to Hollywood and they study child contracts of stars like Shirley Temple, and they form an incredibly great thing, a, a protective ring around him. They give put him on a salary. They pay all his expenses. They give him at least half the gate. You know, everybody's taken care of. Everybody's happy, and he's protected. Um, and the irony is, of course, that it doesn't protect them from him <laughs> and his curiosity about the world is, is being drawn for the first time to any kind of real spiritual discipline in, in, the, in this cult, the Nation of Islam. It's, it's just a story that, you know, Hollywood would find a little bit too... Uh, you know, too convoluted, too impossible to believe, and yet it's it's totally believable because it's true. And there's one moment where the membership that he's now announced in the Nation of Islam has really caused some sponsors to bolt. And a British reporter is interviewing William Faversham, who's the sort of the spokesman of this group of 11 businessmen, and he's sort of pressing him in a kind of uh, you know, the way the media does about this and has he lost money? Has he maybe lost a million dollars from certain, you know, endorsements? And he goes, and isn't this ironic that a group of 11 white Kentucky businessmen, Christians, should be, you know, this? And he goes, well, you know, we, most of us believe that a man is entitled to his belief. Mm. So score one for the Constitution. <laughs> and he stops and he says, and if the Nation of Islam is a hate group, then he can't ever be a member because this man does not have a bone right. of hate in his body. And so they figured it out long before the rest of us who they had, this incredible person. And as perhaps distracting, as destructive, as um, you know, problematic as the Nation of Islam was for him, not just with white Americans, but for many black Christians who were subscribing to the mostly Christian, uh, mostly Southern civil rights movement, the message of separatism did not go down easy. Nonetheless, by the time he's gotten out of the Vietnam problem and, you know, regained his title, everybody is for him. You know, he suddenly, he was right. He was right about Vietnam. He was right about this. But more importantly, he stood for his conviction. And at the end of the day, no matter how racist you are, no matter how prejudiced you are, no matter how much you dislike this, you have to actually admire someone who said, I'm willing to face machine gun fire, then abandon the principles of his faith. You point um, out in the film that, that to a lot of people, though, that, that conversion to the nation of Islam was not viewed as a religious move, but political. That's right. And I, I think that's, that this is where... Uh, you know, our country's racist flip is showing because, you know, we had, including the Supreme Court, permitted Jehovah's Witnesses 
to, to claim conscientious objector status based on their religion. But um, Ali, first Clay, about Ali's conversion to the Nation of Islam, which was not Islam, it was a kind of hybrid American sect, and as we know, had lots of corruption in it and, and lots of dangers. They are the murderers of Malcolm X once they'd have expelled him from their organization. Uh, you know, it, it nonetheless just put the, his blackness, made it just a political thing and not uh, something that was based on faith. And, of course, our country is as, it is as important in the founding of our country that we be able to worship God as we see fit as it is to have the kind of political freedoms that we mostly talk about. And that, I think, is often missed in, in a discussion of American history. And so he, he represents, you know, what uh, Roger Williams and what Anne Hathaway and uh, Anne Hutchinson, I should say, and others uh, represent in the early days of the colony, this desire to be able to worship how you wanted to, free of the dictates of whatever the dominant religion was. And we ended up starting a country without a religion uh, at the center of it. Uh, here in Maine, we're we're happy to be a part of the Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali indeed. story with the indeed, second indeed, fight. Indeed. <laughs> uh, what's known as the as phantom as you can get. the phantom punch. The whole idea of this happening at this little armory uh, in Lewiston, Maine, and then for it to go the way it did—it's a remarkable chapter, I think, in the history of American sports. It it is. It's just so completely improbable. You just have to chuckle. The the game is. Slated for Boston, Muhammad Ali gets, uh, uh, you know, disease as an uh, operation, herniated something or other, and, and he has to recover. And and uh, uh, Sonny Liston, who's been training well, has fallen out of shape, and they get back together. And now the Boston uh, Attorney General is, I mean, the state Attorney General isn't sure that Boston's going to get the right thing, and it has their mob money involved and taxes and so all of a sudden, at the last minute, it's canceled, and then this little venue in Lewiston, the home of the CYO team, <laughs> comes out and says, we'll do it. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the world descends on tiny Lewiston, Maine, and becomes the center of what is thought to be this, this incredible grunge match between uh, Liston, who hadn't expected the upstart play than to, to dominate him as he did in the in the very first fight, despite the the liniment that his corner put on his gloves so that it would get into to Ali's eyes. Very it's a hugely dramatic first fight. But one presumed that Liston would come back and obviously by, you know, the middle of the first round he'd realize that that uh, uh, you know it was gonna go the same way as the previous fight, maybe even more so and just waited until he got a halfway decent punch or not even halfway decent punch and went down. Or the punch was so miraculous that to this day, none of us can figure out how he did it. Or, of course, there's some rumor that it's fixed. But I, I, I can't believe that the Ali, the Clay Ali folks would have had anything to do with it. And I can't imagine just for his reputation that listened would have at that time chosen to take a dive. You know, it just, it, it, there's no, there's no reasonable explanation for what happened other than perhaps, you know, Liston just kind of said, as David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker and a great writer about boxing, uh, 
and, a, and an author of the early life of, of Kesha's Clay. Um, you know, so maybe he just said, oh, the hell with it, and I'll wait for a good punch and went down. Episode three focuses on the rivalry, and I, I have such a vivid memory. There were no, there were no people in the middle. You were on one side or the other in 1971 for the first Ali Frazier fight, the fight of the century. Right. And, and the film makes a pretty compelling case that it was that loss to Joe Frazier that changed the perception and really humanized Ali. Yeah, it, it's paradoxical. So the world is divided between Ali and Frazier fans. Ali represents black power, a new black consciousness he's got uh, he's got this you know bravado he's the greatest he's taken a principled stand he's been you know he's lost three and a half years of his professional life he, he you know he doesn't know really what's going to happen uh it, frazier is the the champion in his absence and uh, they're going to get together it's the lead up to it it's the fight of the century and most of the black intelligentsia would be for um uh, Ali, without a doubt, and a good deal of the black world, because Ali had helped paint the idea that Frazier was the, the, the champion of the white man, and, and a lot of white people wanted to shut up uh, Ali, and so they supported Frazier less for him than for the political statement, and because it was such a divisive time. And Frazier wins, and he wins decisively, and in the last round, um, Ali goes down when he's trying hard to come back and see if he can equal in points or get a knockout. And he, he goes down, he jumps right back up, and the decision uh, is against him unanimously. And he's very respectful after the fight. He talks about his responsibility to show people how to lose as well as how to win. It's his first loss as a professional. And it's beautiful. It's, you can't believe the wisdom coming out of this still young man's um, mouth about how you know everybody's going to, lose a job or lose a loved one or a title and you have to show that life goes on and you can take it. It's the opposite of, of the Ali you've spent most of your time knowing, but we've also gotten into some little before used or seen footage of him with that wisdom all, all the way along. And, and it's at that point, Robert Lipsight the, was, was a reporter followed uh, uh, first play and then Ali from the beginning of his life. He said, you know, in a way, Joe Frazier won the fight but Ali won America mm -hmm. uh, because he he'd taken a principled stand. He stood up for it. He lost like a man. And all of a sudden, people were beginning to look at him saying, you know, it's 71. Maybe he was right on Vietnam or sort of out of there. Not quite, but it didn't work out. He was right about it. Um, he's acted this way. Maybe, maybe I'm going to give him a second chance. And he becomes a hero to a lot of little kids, black and white who put, as the biographer Jonathan Ike says, his poster up on his wall when he was a kid, because all of a sudden, um, whatever the conventional wisdom was about him, I, I had grown up loving him, um, but, he, but you know, was beginning to change. And then, it, you know, by the time he regains his, his, uh, his title four year, three years later, it's just in one of the most magnificent fights ever. Uh, you you um, can't help but... Uh, realize that he's made a complete passage as Howard Bryant, the sports uh, journalist says, you know, he's, he's made himself whole and he's, he's made, he's turned the narrative in his favor, but he's got two, he wins the second bout with Frazier. And then he's got a third one after um, the rumble in the jungle. Uh, that is perhaps the greatest fight of all time, only because 
it ought to have been the last fight ever, mm. right? For not only Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, but for the boxing. You should have just said, you know what, folks? This was a great sport, but now we've seen the pinnacle of it. It's so difficult, that third Frazier fight. Um, and it is, you know, Ali himself said it was the closest to death he ever came. Yeah, a friend of our show, Jerry Eisenberg, said uh, quite uh, with quite uh, insight uh, that that for each, uh, the other guy was Ahab's white whale. Yeah, Jerry is wonderful. He, Lipside, and Sam Kindred are all coming up as young Turks about the time that Ali, Cassius Clay, and then Ali are coming up, and they they sort of go with him and they follow him. They begin to love him. It's not a an unself critical love, but it's 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 there. And you know that Eisenberg, his metaphor goes beyond Moby Dick uh, into many other images, that you know that this old man is quoting the column he wrote as a relatively young man uh, back uh, in that, at, at the time of that fight, at the, at the thriller in Manila. And, and that's okay, uh, because there are very few words to describe what actually happens. It's exhausting. Uh, it was exhausting as filmmakers to cut it down to the right uh, size. It, it when you watch it, it's exhausting in an, in a good way. You know, it's not like I I can't look at it anymore. It's just that this is a, a spectacular battle. You know, it's you know, it, there's nothing in Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter that matches that mm. fight for the kind of epic scope that that this one has. And it wasn't good against evil. It was two good men who sometimes didn't do good things uh, trying to survive for 14 rounds. And you realize, you know, three minutes is an eternity, mm-hmm. uh, it, the length of a round. And the fact, what they went through is, I, I still shake my head in disbelief when I think about what happened in that fight. And the Frazier fight, it was certainly, if not the beginning, close to the beginning of Ali's physical decline, and then the loss to Leon Spinks, uh, the comeback, making history as the only three-time champion, and then the Larry Holmes fight. And I thought that was so poignant, Larry Holmes talking about uh, breaking down after the fight yeah, because well, of his friendship with Ali. Yeah, it's, it's very mixed and very, very complicated because, you know, he had, he had sort of shown up kind of a snotty-nosed kid from Easton, not too far away from the Deer Lake. Uh, training grounds uh, where Ali had been, you know, working out for years and years, and they put him to work. He became a sparring partner. Ali taught him a lot of stuff, and then he rose to the ranks. And so uh, he both was anxious to dispatch Ali, and he did it with a kind of vigor that his peers later on belie. But I also think no one's ever been like him. No one has ever been like Muhammad Ali. So I think there's something very much it is very painful for Holmes to also, at the same time as he relishes his heavyweight championship, he also understands that he is never going to be the center of the story the way Muhammad Ali was, even in that defeat. Uh, the film does a wonderful job at looking at Ali's personal life, his role as a father, uh, complicated because he was on the road a lot. And uh, it may have been Belinda or, or, or even one of his daughters who talked about how, you know, he was a great dad for a while, but then <laughs> needed to get on. Yeah, and... that, that's Belinda or Kalila, as she changed her name, his second wife. And she had to put up with a lot. And I think part of it, and, and every man, if he's honest, will uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, they haven't been 
or I, most every man will acknowledge they haven't been the most perfect father, that there is a kind of attention span that they and you have, and uh, kids sometimes get handed over, as, as Belinda Kalila says, after 20 minutes, he's had enough. <laughs> uh, so, but they loved him, and the wives loved him even for the womanizing. Um, there's no acrimony. Uh, there's pain, and the memory of pain, and, and both his second and third wife, Belinda and Veronica, are open and generous to us about what can't be a very happy thing, but they got close to greatness, and the children who ended up spending a lot of time with their moms or their grandparents uh, and not so, didn't see their dad as much as kids would like to see their dad, have this kind of reverential love and respect for him. And one of them, we interviewed his daughter, Hannah, and his daughter, Rashida, both of the union with Belinda. And um, Rashida seems to carry, it seems to me, a little bit of that Ali magic. Mm. He says, Daddy, you feel his presence. And, and she understood his message of love. And at one point, Towards the end of the film, she squeezes her fingers together and says, you know, to a tiny little crack and says, boxing was only this much. You know, he could have been a simple carpenter, right? And we know where simple carpenters can go. So I, I think that she, she sort of carries that. And we're blessed by having his brother, having neighbors, having cornermen, having the experts, the biographers like Jonathan Ahig, the reporters, the scholars like Gerald Early and Todd Boyd and the writer Walter Mosley and David Remick and all of these people who help kind of help us see him from a variety of vantage points and, and give us a much more dimensional, I guess that's the word I would use, a much more dimensional and fuller portrait of him as a human being as well as a boxer. And we embedded the heavyweight, uh, former heavyweight champion Michael Bent within every significant boxing match to show us not only the strategy and tactics for those of us, the majority of us who aren't interested in boxing, but also the psychology and the wills and the hearts and the, and the kind of personal drama that's taking place so quickly at these nanoseconds of jabs and punches and lunges and, and, and head flicks and getting out of the way. I mean, it's just, I learned so much uh, working on this film. It's still hard sometimes to consider the sport, but, uh, Muhammad Ali was the best at it ever, and uh, he makes us curious about it. I mean, you know, it's so funny. I'm a big baseball fan, and I make baseball films till the cows come home. <laughs> but I've now made two films totaling 12 hours, eight hours of Ali and four hours of Jack Johnson, a, a film about the first African-American heavyweight champion back in the first and second decades of the 20th century. Um, because the person in this case, the two men transcend the sport itself and reflect a larger uh, country, good and bad, and, and what it actually means to be a man, what it actually means to be free, Muhammad Ali and Jack Johnson's big uh, uh, theme in their life, and what it means to try to do that as a black man in America, which is, as anyone would admit, um, complicated by the color of his skin and not, unfortunately, as Dr. King would wish, by the content of the character. Uh, dealing with Parkinson's, to, to extend that metaphor, the cross he had to bear in the last years of his life, uh, in many ways, uh, elevated his image, the perception of him, because of, of the grace and the humility and the way, the good humor in which he dealt with it and, and 
his kids, wives say the same thing, that they never heard him complain. Yeah, uh, it's magnificent. It's really great. In fact, I'll, I'll take a, um, an, an idea that uh, Michael J. Fox, the actor who has Parkinson's as well, impressed me with 30 years ago. He said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still, mm. meaning the shake and palsy. And it's a wonderful sense of finding yourself and finding an inner peace, even with all this outside agitation and the way it seals you off from the world. This is, in Muhammad Ali, one of the most valuable, loud, outspoken people on the planet. And in a way, when he was silenced, he suddenly became an even greater spokesperson for the world. And so in a way, he couldn't really speak until he couldn't really speak, and then became this kind of um, apostle of love, as I suggest. Well, and there's irony, too, in the fact that uh, this man who rose to prominence in the most violent of sports became known as a man of peace and love, okay. and it's that part of the spell, as you point out, that remains. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We have to, at the end, after all the trials and tribulations, all the ups and downs, all the hatred and the love, all of that stuff, just wonder what it was held over us, you know? He, he was... He was something very, very special. And, and, and it's a, this is a hero's journey, and it's also uh, a mythic story in which, obviously, the strengths and the failures are writ large, as the Greeks did it in their gods, um, but they become lessons for the rest of us of how we might conduct ourselves, how to be true to ourselves, how to be brave and courageous, uh, how to persevere uh, through obstacles, um, how to understand and try to atone for your own failings. All of these are huge parts of the life of Muhammad Ali that don't really fit in conveniently to the superficial, conventional wisdom we have of him. You have told so many stories through the years. Has there been an American life like Muhammad Ali's? No. No, I mean, if you were going to invite people to dinner, you know, you'd want to talk to Abraham Lincoln. You'd want to talk to Louis Armstrong. You'd want to have Muhammad Ali there, Ida B. Wells, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, there are just a handful of people who are so utterly American that you just stand and shake your hands and go, wow. And you know what? There's lots of un un unheralded people, so-called ordinary people. And what I've learned in all the bottom-up practice that I do in history and storytelling is that um, there are no ordinary people at the end of the day. You know, people who, who got off uh, LST. Uh, on June 6, 1944 in, in France, and they weren't there for economic gain or, or conquest or empire. They were there for some ideas. They're as heroic as anybody I've ever met. Well, it's a wonderful tribute to you and David and Sarah, the writers and researchers, that uh, in four episodes, eight hours, on the most famous man perhaps in the, in the history of the United States of America, we learn a whole lot of new things. And, and that's a wonderful work by all of you to let us uh, find a new Cassius Clay, a new Muhammad Ali in this story. Well, then you've made my day. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Ken Burns, the new documentary, Muhammad Ali, premieres Sunday night, November 19th, 8 o'clock Eastern time on PBS. When we come back, 
legendary newsman Morton Dean after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A young man from Boston set sail the new frontier And we watched the dream dead end in Dallas They buried in a sunset Downtown, the podcast, and well, if you were watching TV back in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, you likely saw our next guest, a longtime reporter and anchor for both CBS and ABC's, had a remarkable career in the business. We had a wonderful time talking about that career and the current state of affairs with Morton Dean. Well, hello there, Mort. How are you today? Rich, I am just terrific. It's good to meet up with you at long last. Yes, thank you very much. I hope I didn't pull you away from the Red Sox game. Well, no, no, no. I uh, I have found my, I call them the beloveds, are, are frequently difficult to watch, although I've been a fan for many, many, many years. Well, there's so much to talk about uh, in, in your remarkable career, but I, I'm going to start with something a little bit different. Knowing what I know about you, I have to ask this historical question. In March 1947, would I be correct in guessing that maybe you were at the Boston Garden watching a little basketball? March, I, I, I wouldn't know. What, the, the Celtics game, was it? No, the night that Durfee Jimmy Pearsall and his Leavenworth oh. team took oh, it to no, your no, alma mater, Durfee. Yeah, well, I was listening to it on the radio. <laughs> as a matter of fact. Well, I thought you might have a connection to that. You, of course, went to Durfee High School, uh, played there, I believe, captain the basketball team, didn't you? No. Oh, I wish. That is my that is my dream. No, I uh, I played for the JVs. Uh, was uh, making the varsity in my senior year, and I had banged up my knee uh, playing football. As one of my friends said, uh, Mort fell off the bench during one of the football games. <laughs> and uh, I captained. I I played at Little Emerson College, and I captained the team there. But thanks, I am honored by your even believing. <laughs> that I have the wherewithal <laughs> to captain the beloved Durfee High Hilltoppers. Well, Emerson has got such a great tradition of producing uh, wonderful broadcasters and, and actors uh, as well. Uh, was it there or even before that that you set your sights on a career in journalism? Uh, it, it was before that because I used to uh, hang out at the radio, one of the radio stations in Fall River, which uh, fortunately was right next door to Doc Katz's pool hall. So, uh, and I'd love to play pool. And my parents uh, didn't know whether I was going to the pool hall or to WALE. But I, I, uh, I hung out at the radio station, and uh, and and as a matter of fact, there was a there was a, a uh, hurricane coming up to Fall River and was sweeping its way up from the Taunton River. And I, they gave me a microphone and said, "Okay, we're going to run a wire outside." And you just stand there, and we say 
when we say go, just start talking. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I was looking down at, a, at the windows of a furniture store, and they were undulating in and out. The wind was fierce, and suddenly the wind blew out the window, and the glass came racing up the street right by me, and I, I was hooked. I thought, what a wonderful career this could be. <laughs> well, you would land a job, I believe, in Mount Kisco, New York. Now, you took some initiative that your average young broadcaster might not take. What were you, 22, 23 years old when you decided you would go to Cuba and secure an interview with Fidel Castro? Yes, I. It, it was a, about that time that I really thought I had to get some some uh, bona fides on on my resume that I could travel overseas. And one of the places I went, I went there actually twice to Cuba. And, um, and Fidel was a a pitcher. You know, he was a baseball player. Right. At least in college, he was. And uh, I brought my trusty tape recorder to a ball game. He was pitching uh, part of a fundraising ball game. He was pitching for the bearded ones against another team. And I had my tape recorder, and uh, I was with a young lady who was acting as my interpreter, shall I say. And Fidel was, had just wrapped up an inning, and I said, come on, follow me. Don't stop. And I just ran down and jumped onto the field as Fidel was coming off of the mound. And I not being very smart at the time, I had no idea that some people might think that this could be an assassination attempt. <laughs> so I was surrounded by guys with, uh, I, I have some wonderful photographs to prove this, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I was surrounded by guys with guns and uh, others were pushing Fidel away from me. And I thought my Spanish was not very good. And I just yelled at him, Fidel, the truth, the truth, the truth. And I knew he spoke English. And it stopped him dead, and he turned around, and he said, the truth. Who wants to know the truth? What truth? <laughs> and I said, about you, about you. And and we talked for about 20 minutes. It was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> did, did, did you find him to be a very charismatic person? Well, uh, well, he, I mean, we knew he, he was, absolutely. Uh, but he, uh, he liked to talk. You know, his speeches, uh, and I've been to any number of them over the years, when I've gone back to Cuba as a as a network reporter, and you know he gets up there and rather than speak for ten or fifteen minutes, he'll speak for three or four or five hours. He's extraordinary. We're talking with Morton Dean here on downtown. Uh, you got a, a very good gig back home at uh, the legendary WBZ, and and one of your early assignments was to go to Dallas in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. I, I look back on that as a, a very young guy at the time. Uh, as a moment in our history when the media served to bring us together. It was a place where everybody gathered around in that traumatic time. How did that impact yeah. your view of, of your job in broadcast journalism? Well, I look, covering a story like that, you know how exciting that can be and how it gets your juices flowing, as sad as the story was. But I, um, I was on my way up to the State House in Boston in one of those cruisers we have that had a radio in it. And uh, I was uh, about to drop the car off and go up to the state house and interview the then Lieutenant Governor Frank Bellotti. And I, just when I was parking the car, I was listening to BZ Radio News, of course, 
And they broke with the story that the president had been shot. And then a moment later that or that he had died, he had been killed. So I went jogging into the state house. And it was so different back then because nobody had cell phones. Mm. And uh, there were no radios or TVs on. And there was quiet in the state house, even though the president, a native Massachusetts you know, resident, had just been assassinated. So I went jogging up the stairs, I think it was on the third floor, into a hearing room, and the hearing had just ended, and the lieutenant governor was on the telephone, and he was seated uh, uh, with, with his press guy, and they looked up, and I shouted, the president's been killed, he's been shot. And just as I did that, the door to the hearing room was still open, I hadn't pulled it closed, and I could hear people outside in the state house begin to shout, oh no, oh God, things like that. And Bedlam, you know, was uh, break breaking loose. So uh, later that day, my uh, news director, a guy by the name of Ed Fooley, who was to become a great friend of mine and became an executive of mine at CBS News, died just a couple of years ago. But Ed uh, said, uh, we want you to go to Dallas. And so I boarded a plane and went to Dallas. That's how I got involved in that story. I'm glad you mentioned Ed Fouay. I wanted to ask you uh, about him. He's one of the legendary figures in broadcasting, and you had the opportunity to work with him first at WBZ, and then, of course, uh, at the network. What, what did you learn from him? Uh, well, Ed, Ed I, we just had dinner with his, uh, with, with his widow, with his wife, Barbara, the other, the other night. Uh, she's still a good friend. Uh, Ed moved to uh, Cape Cod and... Uh, he introduced me to the woman who is my partner now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I learned Ed, Ed was just the arbiter of you know what was real news and what wasn't. He, he never would accept anything that he thought was not truthful, and he would force you to prove that you really knew what you were talking about. But I have a, perhaps a humorous story about Ed Fooey, which goes to prove what great friends we became. He, he became news director at WBC Radio. And uh, shortly after he arrived on the scene, and I'd been working there for a short while, and uh, we were called into the program director's office. And he was a bit of a strange guy, and he had worry beads in his hand and was playing with those. And he told the assembled staff, which was a fairly good-sized news staff, at least back for that day, and he told us that uh, that BZ had to contemporize itself. And beginning the next day, on the hour when we did a radio newscast, there would be a sounder. And then we were to say the time at 8 a.m. And then we were to say what the temperature is. You know, it's, I don't know, 67 degrees. And then we were to say what the skies, what the weather was. And then we were to say... Your, our names. I am Morton Dean, and I have news for you. Well, we all kind of gagged and said, "Oh, come on, you're kidding! That, that's crazy!" And and he could insult it and said, "Well, you're doing it." So uh, two days later, I uh, was filling in on a newscast at eight o'clock in the morning, and Carl DeSouze was the disc jockey who did the morning. You know that name, absolutely. And um, he said, "All right, we're going to go now to the news." And it went beep, and I said, it's 8 a.m., and there was a thermometer in there connected to the outside. I gave the temperature, and then I thought, 
oh, my God, I don't know what's going on outside. I didn't check. But I thought that partly cloudy would be a pretty good guess. <laughs> it's partly cloudy. I'm Morton Dean, and I have news for you. Well, after the five-minute newscast, I walked out into the hallway. and took It was a rather long hallway, and I walked into the newsroom, which was unusually quiet. <laughs> and as I walked in, everybody was staring at me, and then their eyes turned to focus on Ed Fooey, the new news director, former captain of the U.S. Marine Corps. And I noticed Fooey, and he, he had splotches on his shirt that unmistakably had to have come from a big rainstorm. <laughs> and I just stared at him, and he stared at me. And I won't use the language he used, but he said, partly blankety-blanket cloudy is the worst blankety rainstorm in the history of New England. <laughs> and all the eyes came back to me, and I thought rather quickly, and I pointed at him, and I said, well, you just got to get a window out in that newsroom. And he went crazy. <laughs> he went absolutely fatty. And uh, I've told that story about him a million times in his company, and we were to become a great friend. But, boy, that taught me a lesson. Never again. I love it. That is wonderful. Morton Dean with us here uh, on downtown. You went to CBS uh, Television, WCBS, uh, in 1964, and then on to the network yeah. in 67. And, yeah. my goodness, uh, all, well, every time has its own share of important news stories. But I can't imagine a time in in American history when there was more happening and more landmark events to cover than what you witnessed uh, in your early years at CBS. Yes, it, it was uh, It was a great time to be a reporter. One of the big assignments you got was CBS spending, News. I believe, what, uh, six months in Vietnam in 1971, uh, a, a, look yep. at, a look at a world that most Americans here really didn't know about other than the snippets from the evening news, but to to see up close and personal what was going on with their people, and especially uh, those medevac crews. Yes, uh, it, um, and I, I spent a little time with a, with a medevac crew and uh, going out on a couple of um, rescue missions. And um, about 40-some years later, maybe you're about to lead up to that, but I'll, I'll mention it. About 40 years later, I, I uh, well, 45 years. I went back to Vietnam uh, with my lady friend, with Mary, and uh, when we got back from Vietnam, I got a, uh, a Facebook message, and it really made me begin to believe that something mysterious is going on out there because it had been just a couple of days after our return, and the message was from a helicopter pilot from that medevac unit saying, uh, Boy, we were just talking about you the other day. I haven't talked to him since I met him in Vietnam. <laughs> and we had a reunion, and we showed the piece you had done on the Walter Cronkite show about our unit and uh, just wanted to check, check up with you. So that led to my uh, uh, calling him and then calling a few of the other guys and getting the idea that I ought to do a documentary about what happened not only to the medevac crew that we flew with, but with the three wounded American infantrymen who were rescued on one of the missions that, that we went on. And, and that documentary, which I am very proud of, by the way, I'm not patting myself on the back here, but the guys in it are wonderful. And I don't mean myself, but me. But, and uh, that has had, uh, it's, it's, uh, this is the second year that, that uh, PBS has uh, picked it up and running, it's been running on individual stations here and there. 
and I go around the country, uh, you know, a, a lot talking about that particular story and showing the documentary, which runs 57 minutes. And uh, so I, um, I, I don't know about you, but I think all of us who are in the news business or have been in the news business get captured by one or two stories that, and the people in, in them that you know, never leave us. And, and it's, it's been wonderful for me because since I reconnected with these people, we, we talk uh, not infrequently. And uh, my partner, Mary, has met them. They've been to the house here and on the Cape. And well, I'm kind of babbling here. But, no, no, not uh, at all. It's, it's, it's a wonderful it's a documentary. Story. If you get a well, chance to you. see it on PBS, uh, American Medevac is, is worth your time. It is absolutely terrific. You also uh, covered the space program. You were a semifinalist in the journalist in space program. I, I wonder, Mort, how do you view these uh, private trips into space that some of our uh, our billionaires have uh, set forth on here in recent weeks? Is that is that good? Uh, will it will it kindle interest again in the space program, or, or would you rather that be a governmental effort? Well, you know what I'd rather? That I had a billion dollars so I could buy my way <laughs> onto one of those <laughs> trips. I mean, I'd be I'd be first in line. I, you know, I look. I, I think it is helping to rekindle interest, but not as much as there used to be, because the the networks don't cover space the way we mm. used to cover it. You know, back then we would go to every briefing. Not that they would get on the air, but we covered every technical briefing, every medical briefing leading up to a space shot. So that there were always uh, there were always two of us. At least it's. it's well, each network at the time. But when I was at CBS, we literally knew everything that was going on. And uh, and when the time for the space shot came, we, we covered that from the beginning to the end. It was wonderful. But then somebody got the idea at the networks that people weren't all that interested any longer in space, which was nonsense. And they stopped covering it. And, you know, as was the case with most stories, if they don't get coverage they don't get a lot of interest from the public. And um, I'd, 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 I'd like to see the networks begin to cover it rather than just a brief snippet of coverage when one of these billionaires goes into space. What do you think about it? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm torn because I was a big fan of the space program. I could, I, for many years, I probably still can name every astronaut in, on every Gemini and, and Apollo mission. So I was oh. a big fan, but I want to, you know, I would like to see the science still be a leading component, not just uh, the adventure and, and the commerce, yes. which some of these guys yes. seem to be pushing. Yes, I, 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 I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. I still, uh, I still am in contact with a, a couple of surviving astronauts, people I covered uh, in, in some detail back in the good old days. There came a time when NASA offered the networks the uh, uh, an astronaut to sit with us on the air if we wanted to interview them and and to have them guide us during our coverage and that that was that was just great I I loved doing that I loved hanging out in in Houston and down at uh, the Kennedy Space Center it, it was just wonderful I wanted to ask you about your work in 1992 covering Ross Perot's campaign for president uh, we have. We've had other billionaires run for president in that time, but a very different experience. What was unique about the Perot campaign? 
other than the fact that I thought he was certifiably uh, nuts. <laughs> well, he had that in common with some more recent billionaires. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you. But yeah, he was uh, he was a very very difficult guy to cover. He uh, hated the news media. That sounds familiar. And uh, he he would not give out schedules of where he would be or or where he would be or when he would be there. We'd have to. Uh, coax that out of one of the staff members, and there were only a, a few staff members. But I, um, I, I had some um, uh, difficult times with Ross Perot, and if you have time, I'll tell you one of the stories. Absolutely. I, um, yeah, I had I found out that um, that Perot had testified before a Senate subcommittee in which he told a story that was a great story, but it wasn't true. And that story had to do with the Viet Cong. He claimed and told these senators, and, and, and we got a recording of this. Um, he told these senators that, that one day a, a team of uh, VC gunmen invaded his Perot's property in Texas and, and tried to uh, kidnap the family. And that he was the, the uh, VC were chased away by Perot's guard dog. And I, uh, it was a wonderful story, and it was even written about in a, in a book of, about uh, the Vietnam War that, that Perot helped fund. So there it was in print, too. And, and as I say, it, it wasn't true, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to find somebody, a responsible individual, who, who would say that that never happened. So I, uh, I was covering Perot nonstop at the time. And I, I had a, a young helper who's gone on to become a big-time reporter. And he he was in tech, Dallas full-time. And I said, go to the police station and go through the record. Uh, Perot will not say when this attack by the V.C. happened. But just go through the record and talk to as many cops as you can and try to see if you come up with anything. Well, he called me a few times when I was back in New York and said, you know, there there are there are reports from the Perot uh, family about somebody putting firecrackers in their mailbox and things like that, but there's nothing about the VC <laughs> coming to shoot up the property. So um, I got the name of a. I'll try to shorten the story. I apologize for going on. Not at all. But uh, uh, I got the name of a guy who was the head of the intelligence division of the Dallas police department in the 60s, in the late 60s. And uh, he was no longer with the police department, but he ran a small private detective agency in Dallas. And I called him, and he was wonderful. You know, you've made these phone calls when you're not sure whether you're going to get anything, and then suddenly you realize that the person you just called is going to be your best friend. <laughs> and uh, I... I um, <laughs> I told him, I said, look, the reason I'm calling, I'm from ABC, I was with ABC at the time. I, uh, the reason I'm calling is that uh, I've got this, uh, I'm trying to do a report on on Ross Perot and the invasion of his property by the Viet Cong. And, and I'll clean up the language from this cop. And, and he said, you blankety-blank New York reporters, you believe everything people tell you. <laughs> And I said, Detective, you're going to be my best friend. I just know that. <laughs> and uh, I said, would you uh, talk to me in an interview? 
I'd love to talk to you about that. So, um, you know, we, we found out not only from, from the cop, but also from the guy who was Perot's uh, principal security guy on, at his house that, that it didn't happen. And uh, so Perot, I kept calling and saying to Perot's secretary, look, we're going to run this story. I'd really love to have Mr. Perot uh, talk about it. And, well, uh, he's too busy. He said to tell you he's too busy. So I finally worked the story, was ready to run on the Peter Jennings AV News, and um, it was terrific. And that very day, I got a call. I picked up the phone. I was in my office in New York, and there was a very familiar-sounding voice. Hello, this is Ross Perot. Is Dean there? And I thought it was a friend of mine imitating Perot. Everybody was imitating Perot. And I said, oh, come on. This isn't Ross Perot. Who is this? This is Perot. He said, for real. And um, he said to me uh, that the story he knew I was working on, because I had told his staff member, was not true. And he said, if you run this story on ABC, I'm going to show that guard dog. And part of the story was there was no guard dog. (laughs) I'm going to turn up with that guard dog on NBC. (laughs) I mean, he was crazy. And I said, oh, gee, why don't you turn up with it here tonight? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he said, you know what I'm going to do now? And I said, no. And he said, first of all, I'm going to tell you, you, ABC News, must have a death wish. Sounds like a threat, right? And uh, and then he said, I'm going to hang up and throw up. And he slammed the phone down. That's the, the last I had heard of him, and we ran the story. And, <laughs> and, and when I would uh, turn up at his appearances, he was very unhappy with me. He was a very difficult man. Mm. Uh, Mark, I want, wanted to ask you now, as a veteran of the business, what do you see as, as the state of broadcast journalism today? Well, I think that uh, two things. I think too many people equate uh, talk TV and the, you know, the, the news, newscast talkathon as, as news when it really generally isn't. It's just uh, you know people interviewing other people and nobody going out to cover the story. And uh, I think that uh, that that bothers me a, a, a lot. I would rather go back to the old days when people covered news stories and mm. included interviews in the news stories. I think you you know what I'm getting at here. The uh, the, the the old networks, including the World News Tonight, they rarely cover the world now, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons why so many people dislike. Uh, the news media is because they don't really see the news. They just hear about it from talking heads. I don't know whether that makes any sense to you or not. It does to me, absolutely. That's my feeling. I, I was a, a very young man. I think I was about 18 or 19. I probably looked 12 or 13, and I was doing the, the Sunday night local news back in the 70s uh, when you took over the Sunday evening news. And- Where? Where? Where were you? Uh, right here in Bangor, Maine, and uh, you. Oh, how about that? You cut a promo uh, back in the day, forty some years ago, uh, for me, and so I appreciate that. And I wonder if well, all wait, these well, years. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I'm just going through my file. You never paid me for that, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and that's uh, I sent that check with my guard dog. It didn't arrive. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> I'm just so glad Upton was able to get us together, and uh, thank you. I hope we can do it again sometime. 
Well, yes, I have a story about Upton, but I won't tell you now. Okay. Well, you're recording it. We'll have to do it again then. Definitely. Okay. Thank you, Mort. Be well. Bye-bye. That is Morton Dean here on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to Mort, and thanks, of course, to Ken Burns as well, talking about his new documentary on Muhammad Ali, which premieres on Sunday night. Harry Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.